and hope does not disappoint us. May Jesus Christ be praised and glorified both now and unto the ages of ages. Amen. This past March marked the 50th anniversary of the release of The Godfather. Francis Ford Coppola's gangster epic about Don Corleone and his empire of crime, family, and power. Considered by many to be one of the greatest films of all time, the movie is full of memorable scenes, each carefully planned and crafted, as was typical of our tour directors of the 70s. But one of my favorite scenes is actually the result of a mistake. The scene in question comes from the wedding sequence at the beginning of the movie. As the revelers celebrate the wedding of Don Corleone's daughter, the Godfather, memorably and ably portrayed by Marlon Brando, who despite a bad reputation was arguably the greatest actor of his generation, the Godfather is in his office, listening as people request favors. The parade of supplicants makes it clear to the audience that futures hang in the balance based on the whims of this one powerful man, that one should not trifle with Don Corleone. As the party continues outside, Don Corleone's son Michael arrives with his girlfriend, who spots a powerfully built man practicing a speech as he waits outside the Don's office. Michael's girlfriend asks who the scary guy is. Michael identifies him as Luca Brasi and tells a harrowing story that makes it very clear that one should not trifle with Luca. But when Luca finally arrives in Don Corleone's office, he stumbles nervously over the speech that he had been practicing. The message is clear. Even this strong, scary guy who is feared by many is terrified of the powerful Don Corleone. This scene between the Godfather and Luca Prazi perfectly encapsulates what Coppola was trying to convey in that opening sequence, that Don Corleone has the power to make even powerful men fear him. But the best part about this scene is that it's totally accidental. Evidently, the actor who played Luca Brasi, a guy named Lenny Montana, had never done a film before, and he was so nervous about doing a scene with Marlon Brando that he stumbled over his line on the first take. But instead of reshooting, Coppola recognized that this apparent mistake actually represented an improvement over the original script. And he added shots of Montana practicing Luca's speech. By being opening, open to a serendipitous mistake, in other words, Coppola was able to create one of the more memorable small roles in film history. Montana apparently thought he deserved an Oscar for his performance. <laughs> which is a bold move when you forget how, what you're supposed to say, but anyway. Moreover, the director tapped into an important truth, I think, about the human experience, that it's not always wise or even possible 
to go back and fix our mistakes. That we often learn more about ourselves when we live with the consequences of what we have done wrong and discern a new way forward. The gospel lesson that we just heard comes from a long discourse in John's gospel in which Jesus is preparing those closest to him for his imminent betrayal and death. Given this context, the things that Jesus says in this passage are pretty strange. I still have many things to say to you, Jesus says, but you cannot bear them now. A little later in chapter 16, the disciples say to one another, we have no idea what he's talking about. And I have to say, I'm sympathetic to their perspective, given what we just heard. After all, Jesus is about to die. Regardless of whether the disciples can bear it, Jesus is running out of time to say what he wants to say. I've seen this race against time among people who are talking to loved ones on their deathbeds. How can you possibly say everything that needs to be said when time feels like it is running out? Nevertheless, Jesus seems to trust that what he needs to say to the disciples will be revealed when the time is right even if they cannot bear it now. In this moment, Jesus is, of course, predicting the coming of the Holy Spirit, the advocate, the one who will lead the disciples into all truth. But at the same time, I think Jesus is acknowledging the limits of our capacity to understand the world we live in especially in moments of grief and transition. As the disciples come upon the precipice of their life without Jesus, they're in a place of deep uncertainty, a place where language and previous experience are inadequate to explain their circumstances a place where the future is unclear. And in many ways, Trinity Sunday is about acknowledging the limits of human understanding. Since the early Middle Ages, the church has reserved a Sunday each year to celebrate the Trinity the doctrine at the heart of our faith that explains, or at least expresses, that God is active in this world in different ways. And if I'm honest, I've always wondered what the purpose of this day is. Many observances in the church, particularly those that do not explicitly commemorate an event in the life of Jesus, were established in response to something that was happening in the life of the church or the world at the time. 
And in this sense, it's not entirely clear what Trinity Sunday was or is responding to. And I think this ambiguity tempts many in the church, preachers especially, to use this day to explain the doctrine of the Trinity, to demonstrate how one plus one plus one can indeed equal one. But there are two issues with this approach. In the first place, the greatest minds in the church's history, far greater than any that have inhabited this pulpit, no offense to anybody, (laughs) the greatest minds in the church's history have spilled gallons of ink attempting to make sense of the Trinity. And they almost all end up concluding that it is ultimately a mystery at the heart of God that can only be apprehended through faith. Moreover, any attempt to explain the Trinity generally ends up being an academic exercise. However we end up conceiving of this doctrine, what difference does it really make in the lives of God's people? In this sense, I think that Trinity Sunday is about recognizing the ineffability of God. The fact that there are certain things in this life that we simply cannot understand. That there are moments in our lives when we come to the very edge of human knowledge. The Trinity resists definition, in part because it is genuinely difficult to understand, but more importantly, because when we are confronted with an ultimate reality, with a reality that transcends our understanding, words and previous experiences will fail us almost every time. And make no mistake, this is suffering. Because to suffer is to encounter the limits of human capacity. To suffer is to come to a place where we cannot imagine taking another step forward. To suffer is to exist in a place of deep uncertainty. And the question before us is what do we do when we suffer? What do we do when we come to the edge of our capacity to understand? Often our inclination is to retreat, to go back to where we started, to fix the mistakes we made and see if we can arrive in a place where suffering will not be part of our experience to try to figure out how to do things over again. But as we've already noted, (laughs) life generally doesn't afford us this opportunity. We don't have the chance for a do-over most of the time. 
Suffering, the experience of limitations, is part of what it means to be a human being. And fortunately, Paul tells us that suffering produces endurance and that endurance produces character, and that character produces hope, and that hope, hope does not disappoint us. Hope does not disappoint. It's hard to imagine a more inspiring and a more intimidating phrase from Scripture. Because hope depends on two seemingly contradictory and conflicting impulses. Supreme confidence in God's goodness and uncertainty about what the future holds. Hope requires us to step out in faith, unsure of what will happen next. And this is particularly difficult to do when we are suffering, when we are coming up against those limitations that we all experience every day of our lives. But part of what we are called to do is to emulate that same posture of Jesus that same posture that Jesus had in his final hours with his disciples, trusting that our future will be revealed to us even if we cannot bear it now. When we suffer, when we encounter the limits of human capacity, we can attempt to turn around and do things differently, to try to figure out how to do things over again, even though we know that this is often impossible. Or we can continue moving forward, trusting that whatever we endure, hope, will not disappoint us.